Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Adriana Garcia Seja, who recently launched a traditional search fund backed by Footbridge Partners, Pacific Lake, and others, with a primary focus on the healthcare industry. Adriana brings a ton of experience to her search, including corporate development at Home Depot and a head of special projects role at Applied Concepts, a search fund-backed company during her gap year in our MBA at Harvard. We talk extensively about lessons learned at Home Depot, including the many mentors she's had along the way, how to be an entrepreneur in a big company, picking the right search fund model for you, getting hands-on experience prior to searching, and how we can encourage more women to become searchers. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Heather Anderson from Live Oak Bank. How should prospective acquirers evaluate whether they can raise prices in the company that they're looking at? This is a great question. Price elasticity is more important than it's ever been. And smaller companies don't always have the power that larger companies might have to raise those prices. So it's really important for a buyer to evaluate whether some price increases have already been passed along. If if they have not, that's a good indicator that there may be some challenges to doing so. And it might be difficult to be the new buyer and step in and be the one to actually execute that kind of price increase. So it's it's really important to judge price elasticity, whether there are special strategies that someone might be able to use, you know, rather than just a straight across the board price increase, perhaps they can come at it from another angle. But it's really important to evaluate whether it's been done before and for the buyer to determine how much risk there might be in doing so in the future. Great. Thanks, Heather. To learn more about Live Oak Bank's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood and & Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. One topic we've debated a lot or discussed is the some of the differences between some of the self-funded accelerator traditional models and there's some pretty nuanced differences and uh, considerations that you went through and thinking through what you were going to do, but also kind of the way you looked at the landscape of search. I would love to hear kind of broad thoughts to start with. What, what were some of your considerations when looking at different options for your search? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, I think my experience is different than most or, or than average in that I think I had most exposure to all the models uh, and and by that, I mean, you know, in, in business school, certainly obviously debated the traditional versus the self-funded model, but I also veer off from business school during the pandemic to work at a search fund accelerator portfolio company and thoroughly went into and explored the accelerator model and actually almost signed on with SFA and, and pursued the accelerator model. And I'll say when we oftentimes talk about, you know, the accelerator versus traditional versus self-funded. One of the things that irks me and I know irks you, Alex, is we tend to jump to conclusions. And I would say the, 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 my experience, and I think the situation, it's certainly not that. It's not fair to say, you know, there are these broad generalizations where 
For example, self-funded searchers tend to buy smaller businesses, have better economics. And so you must do self-funded if you want to pursue X. And if you want to pursue Y, a bigger business, maybe go with a traditional. I don't think that's the case. I think in the accelerator model as well, even across I mean, I can think of three accelerators in the U.S. right now, and their models are different, right? So SFA is single investor model, which has nuances. Broadtree and, and NextGen, I, I don't think that they're a single investor model. I know Broadtree for sure isn't. And so I'd say diligencing the strategies and what each brings to the table is certainly something that helped me and really understanding what it was that I needed at that moment in time and also what I thought I would need in in my search journey is important. Yeah, those broad generalizations, this model versus that model and all those discussions are definitely irk me for sure. My just from discussions I've had, the best model tends to be the one that gets you an operating seat. End of story. Like the one that gets you, your personality, characteristics, strengths, weaknesses and circumstances into a CEO chair is the best model for you. And that's definitely been an ongoing discussion I've had with a few folks. But one, I like just diving into that concept a little bit more that you kind of touched on is what factors did you weigh when, and of any model of looking at investors and seeing, is this investor going to help me or be the best fit for me? Like what factors went into that decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Again, thinking about it from my experience and my individual needs, I had a finance background prior to going to business school. I started out in investment banking and then worked in M&A. So I thought about you know, what aspects of search I would need help in. And I felt pretty confident in you know, my deal, not necessarily sourcing because I didn't source deals too much, but my deal process and deal evaluation and financial skills. I had some operation experience, so but I knew, you know, operating and being a CEO, first-time CEO of a business is always going to be daunting. So I thought along the journey, I would want folks that have sat both in the searcher seats as well as in the, the owner-operator seats. But most importantly, I knew that my pattern recognition would not compare to folks that are doing this on a day-to-day basis. And so what that meant is I was confident in that I could execute, but not as confident, especially being a solo searcher, I should have started with that, that I that I would have the thought partnership that I needed to feel confident in a successful search if I just went the, the self-funded route, say. And so very early on evaluating across the different models, I knew self-funded was sort of not an option for me because... I don't know, folks always say in, in the search community, one of the things it's, it's obviously very open, it's it's very collaborative, it's super helpful, everyone will talk to you. But I just felt bad myself if I went the self-funded route and was just asking for folks' times every every day of the week. I, I don't know, I wasn't confident that I could pursue the, the thought partnership that I needed. So again, I, I was really trying to diligence the investors and the people that really valued that added a lot of value across each point of my search, whether if it was fundraising or connections or developing industry thesis or just anything or, or talking about women in search, I really wanted to partner with people that had helped me and I knew could continue to help me just grow in, in this journey. Yeah, certainly. And one thing we also talked about was some of the, the, the there's like the tech side of starting a search, but there's also just the mental side of preparing for what a search looks like on a day-to-day basis. And Know, highs and lows and some other things. What what sorts of advice did you get from folks who are, you know, helping you prepare mentally for for a search? 
Yeah. And I'll say I'm, I'm not someone that's been super prone to risk in my career. I mean, if you look at my track record, uh, in life, I, I probably am more risk averse. And so doing something like search was frankly for myself, quite surprising. And so I, it took a lot, not handholding, but a lot of support and cheerleading from my investors, from my friends, uh, from my professors also. So the best advice that I always got was just get started, get going and know that you need to have some grace with yourself and some patience. I think anyone, you know, listening to your podcast, anyone that that we speak to that's interested in this topic is probably someone that that has the characteristics of being, you know, very intellectually curious, very driven, very motivated to learn or to execute and I certainly was like that myself. And for folks that, you know, fit those characteristics, it can be daunting to launch something where literally every single day at every part of the journey you are testing yourself and there are challenges, there are moments of success. But I remember when I was fundraising, feeling even then, you know, it was something new for me, something that I'd never done and and getting across those hurdles. But finding folks that really were good cheerleaders and and finding the way to be graceful that I wasn't going to be perfect and it was never going to be this, you know, perfect thing from the start. Um, just having that mentality, I think, has really helped me in, in this journey. And you mentioned healthcare being the probably the primary industry that you're you're looking after. Can you share a little bit about what that's influenced by and what what motivates you about healthcare in particular? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I I haven't had direct professional experience in healthcare, but we were talking about my experience prior to business school and I I was in banking and and I worked at Home Depot as well in their corporate development group. And I see a lot of similarities with services style businesses. Having said that, the reason for switching into healthcare is certainly a, a personal motivation my, my husband is a nurse, has worked in behavioral health and psychiatric and, and substance use uh, treatments in his career. He himself is in recovery. And, you know, we've unfortunately had a lot of family members and, and friends that have suffered from various diseases. And so for me, it was really, I found myself at this juncture in business school where I kept, it almost seemed like every class, I kept getting this, this feedback of, you know, what's your passion? What are you going to do? How are you going to make the world a better place? And I thought, now that I'm in an entrepreneurial mindset and an entrepreneurial seat, I can actually make a difference in something that matters, something that, you know, is truly in high need and something that I have, if not direct professional experience, definitely personal experience. So that was what really fueled the passion for healthcare. And I'm hoping to be able to, to be successful in finding a good asset in the space. Yeah, and healthcare is just such a massive industry with a million different sub niches within healthcare from literal hospitals to software, insurance, and all, everything in between. I remember you talking about your work at Home Depot. And I don't know why I thought, I just I didn't realize that Home Depot had a corporate development program at all. Obviously, they're a huge company, and so they probably should have one, but I didn't think of it quite that way. I thought of it more as going to Home Depot to get the moving boxes and cardboard. But what was that experience like? How did what sorts of things and lessons did you pull out of that Home Depot experience? Yeah, I loved Home Depot. I have nothing but great things to say about about the business. And part of that was frankly the people at Home Depot. And even though Home Depot doesn't call their headquarters headquarters, we call it the store support center. And it's really a culture that is fueled from the top down. But it's actually, you know, we studied this in business school. It's like servant leadership. 
where the CEO and us uh, that that reported to the C-suite, we really are there to support the the store associates, the stores, and ultimately the customers. And I think for a Fortune 30 retailer that does 100 million plus in revenue, that has such a high brand name, I didn't believe it until I was there that it, that you could have something so massive where the culture so permeate permeated throughout and. It was really one emphasized on delivering the best products, the best services, really thinking about the customers, both you, if you are a DIY customer, just walking down the aisle or the professionals that make up the bulk of, of the revenues. And one of the things that I was really taken aback, I remember my first day there, I thought, here I am going into home improvement. I don't really have too much experience in home improvement myself. Uh, certainly as a woman, I was not picking up drills. It was not something that interested me you know, as a, as a little girl. But something that I that I was amazed by was the diversity of the leadership team. And so in my in my group, I reported my group reported to the CFO at the time, Carol Tomei. And there's been few women in my career that have had just such a an amazing have been such amazing role models. And I mean, she's a rock star now. She's CEO of UPS, and just her track record and her story, and just seeing how someone can go from starting out from from humble beginnings and not really being born into a you know c-suite role or, or c-suite family and just getting up to the top and just seeing her do it in such an authentic way and that that just spoke to me to the ethos of of the company and so again it's a great business great retailer but to me it was really the culture of of the company that astounded me and why i'm so loyal to them can you share any notable experiences or stories you had with her where a light bulb went off or there was some key lesson you took away from from working with her or some some interesting story yeah absolutely and again as as a woman that has pursued you know parts of my career where in fields that have been very very male dominated i've always looked to successful women and i've frankly always have had really great examples like her i remember i think it was my first year it was it was in my first years we were having a meeting with at headquarters that we had helped prepare. And she was starting out the meeting. It was in our big auditorium. And she was talking about, you know, our financial performance to date. It was their strategy meeting. And one of the things that she always said, even in a business, a a meeting like that, that was televised to everyone across corporate, 4,000 employees, and would be recorded for the 40,000 employees. I remember her talking about financial performance and saying, yeah, you know, in this case, like cash is queen. And I've heard that idiom so much in, in investment banking of cash is king, but I've never heard someone with such confidence and such grace and frankly, just such personality say cash is queen just to everyone. And it was just, she had so many little moments like that, just in, in her personality and the way that she walked into a room. I mean, she she's a small woman. <laughs> she's she's petite, but you know, when she walked into a room, she just commanded the room. And I was just I, I remember being in my mid-20s at that point, just amazed by by this rock star of a of a female, you know, businesswoman and what she could establish and, and what she built with her career. So it was little things like that 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 really sparked in me this this idea of wow, you can make a difference regardless of who you are, your background, what you come from, or what you look in this case. Those are great. I love that. That cash is queen. That's fantastic. What kind of behaviors or habits that you observed with her have you taken into your own life and career? Yeah, I'll speak a lot about the authenticity. I think that that she has. 
again, being a, in very male-dominated fields and, and now also in search where unfortunately there's not you know too many women in search and in reaching out to sellers that tends to be a lot of men that you you have to connect with. I would say she never lost her authenticity. Again, she was a petite woman and she never, you know, tried to dress like the guys. I remember a lot of managing directors in banking tried to do that. She always dressed like herself. Her hair was always like herself, her makeup, her jewelry, but always coming to a meeting prepared and always being super sharp. But that to me just showed, you know, you can still have remnants of yourself, obviously being professional, but finding ways to be your authentic self and bringing your whole self to to a meeting to the table, but still commanding that respect and commanding that level of expertise that she had developed. And those were the little things I think that that really carried on for me. And so I myself, you know, like to wear jewelry and and wear, you know, different sorts of clothing. And and I, I don't want to trade who I am for trying to become someone that I'm not. And I think that's that's something that she taught me in in all my experiences at at Home Depot. Yeah, there's probably also a longevity piece to it where if you manage to get comfortable just kind of being yourself at work or in, in your career, it's probably easier to just keep doing that for longer versus having to pretend and put up a facade. And then eventually you just get worn out from pretending all the time and that, that breaks down and could cause issues. I, I imagine there's just a self-preservation aspect to that too. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's self-preservation, but I think it's also building your legacy, right? So you would not think of again, it, it wasn't just her at Home Depot. There were a lot of there was a lot of diversity amongst amongst the C suites. And everyone I think was very authentic to their story, to their background. There even though it was a home improvement retailer, it wasn't like we were all out there wearing jeans and walking down with drills, right? Like there were a lot of, you know, different varieties and flavors of, of people in in the hallways and I think that was something that was just so cool because it was a big company, but we're all working towards this common goal, all bringing our own different experiences, backgrounds, and, and personalities to it. And I think that that culture of really wanting to build something for for yourself, but not pretending like you're something you're not, was was key to the success and something that I hope to carry on in in my career. As you know, it continues on here. Yeah, and a concept embedded in your experience at Home Depot is being entrepreneurial in a big company. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit more? Like, what did that mean for you at Home Depot? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I, I was working in the corporate development group at Home Depot, corporate development strategy, and had the opportunity to work on an acquisition with our online and private brands business. And so I was in a pretty unique role in that I had the opportunity to do intrapreneurship, right? So through an acquisition, help lead an integration of, of a business into a whole new unit. That always is going to be entrepreneurial in nature. You're always trying to you know, marry two businesses together and, and stand up a, a, new, a new business category. That's always in and of itself going to be entrepreneurial. But for me, what was really key about Home Depot was Beyond my role and my experience, everyone that I met there, whether it was my merchants or whether it was the floor designers, everyone had this entrepreneurial ethos. And I think it was because, or my hypothesis is that the founders really started that from the start, from the time of of the birth of Home Depot, and it carried through in the values. And I think that made our jobs in corporate development and, and in integrations way easier because you weren't waiting around for someone to do to give you work. You were you were being proactive yourself and everyone wanted to help each other and everyone had this collaborative mindset. 
And I think for, for a company that's that large, it was something very unique to see. Again, it was not surprising for my specific role because I knew when you're starting something from scratch, it's always going to be entrepreneurial. Of course, you always had some, there are challenges, right? So, um, there's always legacies and there's systems that you're trying to convince people to, to go away from. But in general, it was it was a very entrepreneurial culture. And I think that helped certainly myself, but it helped others see the necessity for for change. Because, you know, as we know now, retail is a very dynamic industry. Yeah, no kidding. You talked earlier and kind of alluded to service retail and healthcare having a lot of similarities. Would you be able to dive into those a little bit a little bit deeper? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just mentioned retail is at a spot where there is a lot of dynamic changes. Obviously, you're seeing the rise of e-commerce. You have been seeing the rise of e-commerce. Supply chain is huge. Traditional retail is very different now than what it was even five years ago. And I'd say one of the key learnings for me and, and that I've seen retailers employ is that no longer can you be successful in retail just by selling something. You can't just deliver a product and, and hope that people are going to come to your site and, and just buy it for whatever reason. I think you really have to find a value add. And part of that is thinking of yourself as a services business. It's if you go into Home Depot, finding that store associate that's really going to know the exact drill that you need. If you go into a Sephora, in my case, finding the store associate that's really going to know, you know, whatever makeup you want or whatever brand you need. And I think there's a lot of similarities to that in healthcare, in that you are trying to find the needs of the patients. You're always doing this, this way of helping treat whatever ailments they think they have or, or you know, you, you find out they have. And I think more importantly, the way that you treat your customers in retail is really um, doesn't really come from the C-suite or from headquarters. It really comes from the store associates. It's the frontline employees that really make the difference as far as delivering best-in-class service. And that certainly is the case in, in healthcare. I mean, you saw just in the pandemic, you know, everyone was thinking our frontline nurses and, and obviously the doctors and it's such a services-based business that I think there are a lot more similarities than, you know, I think what we would traditionally think of. And to kind of build on the that strong customer-first culture element, what sorts of observations did you see at Home Depot and how they hired and trained and recruited folks? What kind of lessons did you pull from studying Home Depot and working in Home Depot that you can use in looking at healthcare businesses. So if you look at a healthcare business and you check out their team and you start, you're able to ask questions to the, either the intermediary or the owner themselves, like what sorts of questions are you, and what answers are you trying to get out of that conversation based on your experience at Home Depot that could indicate whether this is a customer first culture or something else? Yeah. So in my time at Home Depot, I was able to do quite a bit of, of store visits, both with the C-suites and merchants. And I think those were really some of the best learnings that I, that I had on how to, how to figure out if a culture is a good culture in a store, is a culture where the store employees are, are treated not fairly, but frankly, as they deserve to be treated because they are, again, in this case, the frontline frontline to your customers. I remember, you know, you mentioned recruiting and, and retaining. We actually, on average, had lower lower turnover than some others in, in retail because we did a lot to compensate our store associates well. 
Now you see a lot of Starbucks, Walmart, you see a lot of raises. Home Depot was analyzing that before Starbucks and Walmart were even on the, on the news about it. And so being able to make sure that store associates were paid fairly above the minimum wage is something that I certainly learned. And now, you know, we're, we're looking at healthcare businesses, as you know, that's one of the things when I hear an owner tell me we actually pay, you know, our nurses or our staff slightly above minimum wage. That's something that's great because it means that you really are truly thinking about your people. And those people are the ones that are going to be delivering that service from walking the stores, being able to go and do site visits and healthcare and seeing it's little things like how is the bathroom maintained? That was something that I learned in, in store walks, being able to see the C-suites, you know, the, the head of marketing congratulate a cashier and really give them a, what we call a Homer award, seeing if those sorts of cultures are found in healthcare or, or clinics. That's something that's important for me. It's, it's the little things, I think, the little recognition that really make a huge impact for associates and, and for employees. And so that's really where, where I'm homed in on. It's, it's, it's in the details. It's not anything that I could ask, you know, in the financial statements or, or anything like that. Yeah, these are really interesting. Do you have any more examples? This, like, this could be like its own 10 minutes of the show. I could love to hear like, as many like little examples of, of positive or negative signals that you've seen in, in businesses? Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly my, my favorite are the, the bathroom visits. I think being able to, to walk and just see, you know, how your patients, your customers are, are treated, being able to see if, if someone asks a question, for example, someone answers. And an, an analogy to that in retail is, you know, we would walk along the stores and ask a, a store associate sometimes and, like, hey, can you help me find this? And if they walk you to the aisle, then that is something that, you know, the store associate is, is doing the right thing. So in healthcare, is it, you know, it's if you see someone, a patient ask for help to a nurse, it's like, well, is the nurse helping them and maybe asking them a follow-up question? What are the analogous things that, you know, I bring from, from my retail experience? And asking myself those questions and, and finding those little examples Again, the ones that really stick out to me are the bathrooms, questions, the follow-ups, et cetera. I think building on that further, there's it's not just a zero one. There's a spectrum from very customer-focused cultures to the opposite. There's kind of everything in between. So if you're looking at a company and you're trying to figure out if this would be a good fit for you, like where along that spectrum are you okay with this company having some elements of that? Maybe they're not all the way there, but they have some. Like where do you draw that line where there's the there's like a path of no return where if this if this culture just isn't there's enough things broken you're not going to pursue it further where do you, where do you draw that line yeah so this relates to our our search model conversation and one of the things when i was thinking about what i wanted out of my search and the sorts of businesses that i was hoping to to finally end up acquiring one of the things with that i really aligned on with my investors was we really really want to buy a great business and the idea is it's easier to buy a great business than to take something and change it and hope that you can change the culture, bring about new processes, new people, et cetera. Like that, that seems like a daunting task in and of itself. And so when you talk about sort of like, what is it the minimum that we need to have to, to define a, a great business? I think in the instance of healthcare, in the instance of services-based business, the culture actually really matters a lot. If I, you know, if I see a business and, and when I hear sellers, it's like, well, you know, we're just doing cost cutting or if you go to a site visit and things don't really check off, that's, 
it might be an interesting conversation just to learn more about the industry, but it's not a business that we truly are interested in in buying. And so on the flip side of that, you know, when we hear a seller say that, hey, we're being proactive, we're paying our people more, you go to the bathroom, <laughs> again, I keep going back, back to the bathroom, but it's so important, like we go to the bathroom and it's clean and it's well-maintained and people just seem happy. Those are the the types of businesses that really stand out. And I think that's where you know you really have something. And I'll say it's easier to start from something that maybe is smaller, but really has that culture and try to scale it and build it up, even within healthcare, versus trying to take something that is larger, maybe doesn't have the right culture and hoping to change the culture around. Yeah, that's significantly more difficult. And even some cultures where it doesn't seem all the way customer focused or customer first, sometimes there's not like a widespread issue. Maybe there's only like a handful of folks that don't fit all of those values. And once you find other places for them or they move on to other companies, then things can start becoming a little bit easier. I know that that's been a storyline for a handful of of searchers I've gotten to know where they walked into a culture and maybe they thought it was great or they knew that there were some issues, but they felt that they could overcome them. And from your, from time at Applied Concepts in Home Depot, like, do you have a, do you feel like that's a strength of yours where you can either identify a good one or feel like even if there's some imperfections, you feel pretty good about knowing how to improve these cultures and make them kind of what you want them to be. Yeah. I mean, I think the beauty of of search and business is that you can triangulate a lot of data points. And what I mean is it's not just trying to you know gauge the culture and you're walking into something blind, but you do have some quantitative understanding of how the business is performing. Obviously the financials, but I'm also referring and alluding to, you know, Things like customer retention and churn and referral rates are very important. And so you can triangulate and, and put some data to, to your gut feeling. But you know, if, if you don't have the data or if you or if you think, well, maybe this is this is doing okay, this is great in customer service and in patient care, and it has a really high referral rates, but maybe things don't check off in, in one area. I think it's ultimately ultimately a matter of assessing you know, the level of risk required. And so, for example, you know, you mentioned applied concepts. At applied concepts, we, it was customer first, but it was B2B. So it wasn't directly with, I don't know, like a retail customer. But the idea was we were able to check how our services were performing based on our churn. And when we had, I mean, I was also working there during the pandemic. So there was a lot of change and, and volatility going on. But when when there was when there was some churn, you could you know really double down and, and ask questions and call up the customers and really try to fix and be upfront about it before just guessing and, and making the problem become bigger than what it was. Can you share a little bit? We haven't talked about applied concepts at all. I thought that was a, a great way for you to learn how a search fund run company works. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that experience and kind of what you learned through it. Yeah. So I took a deferral year during my MBA program with a pandemic and wanted to work at a search fund portfolio company. And so I worked at Applied Concepts, which does car dealership training. And so at the time, well, I guess when when the business was first acquired in late 2019, it was primarily a full in-person business based out of Orlando, Florida. B2B business, when I got there, it had been acquired for a little over a year. The pandemic had also happened. There were unfortunately some, there was unfortunately some churn in customers just due to, due to the pandemic. And there was a lot of changes going on. So obviously work from home, I got to see that shift in a small business. And 
very different going, uh, you know, with an IT department of two and old school PCs and trying to get everyone to work from home. That was something that was, there's a lot of war stories just with that alone. But, but my main learning was seeing really what a quote unquote small business was like under, under fire, under duress. And also while trying to grow, like not just maintaining, you know, not just getting back to where you were, but really thinking ahead of, hey, we know we need to make some changes. We know we need to make some investments in technology, for example. How can we be strategic and really think about, well, you know, two years down the road, we're hoping to, we're hoping to 2x, 3x, 4x our revenue from where we were before the pandemic. So what, what tech do we need? What strategies do we need? Should we pursue other products? So that was something that I had never really been exposed to, just the level of change in a in a business like that. Again, one trying to just make it through the pandemic, but also thinking ahead and, and planning for growth when there was already so many changes happening at, at that time. Yeah, the life of a CEO is pretty chaotic in normal times, but I can't imagine in that transition during COVID to remote, the added chaos of, of all that happening. From your time shadowing the CEO, what sorts of things did you learn or observe that have been that were pretty interesting to you? Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, I I love that experience. It was my first time working in a small business in a in a small business setting, and I also really really lucked out with an amazing CEO. In that he was a new CEO, Jason Jones, but he really was open to being vulnerable and open and transparent with me and. So in shadowing my CEO, I got full exposure to everything from hiring to firing, which is very, very common in small business, I very quickly learned, to working in strategic projects, to operations, to marketing. So I really got to see the full gambit of across the projects that I was working on and also literally just walking into meetings, you know, sometimes hearing the the board meetings that he was on, helping him prepare board decks and so I think that exposure, I mean, to, to the, your point, you know, the life of a CEO, I mean, there is no, you know, day in the life because every day is different. You cannot say, you know, from this day, you're going to do X. I mean, sometimes you work weekends, sometimes you work nights, sometimes you're going to dinners, sometimes you're going to lunches, and sometimes you just have to work for four hours straight on a board deck because there's an emergency. And so there's always these fires that are going around the CEO that I think oftentimes as employees you don't you don't get to see experience or witness and shadowing a CEO especially of a of a small business going through so much change i was really exposed to all that and frankly for me it wasn't just that i'd never had you know true small business experience but at that point in my career i'd worked in more traditional settings had been in my in my 20s and had never really thought of myself as having the confidence for myself of being able to see myself in a CEO role shortly after school and that year away shadowing him really gave me the confidence that I needed to feel like, yes, I can do this and it's not going to be perfect. It never is for anyone. But ultimately, you know, you you learn along the way and, and you grow and you have the right board members to guide you. And that really helps in situations like COVID or just in the day-to-day life of, of a CEO. Yeah, certainly. And especially in building confidence in search, which has been pretty male dominated for most of its history. I'd be, I would love to learn more about what kinds of challenges or hurdles did you encounter, like kind of coming into the search world and not seeing like seeing fewer women examples of you know, search CEOs leading you know great companies. Like what sorts of challenges did you encounter and have you thought through those? 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot of, you know, female role models in, in search. I think if we think of, of search funds as uh, a subset of private equity, something like 18% of private equity across the, the globe, 18% of that is, is women. But search, you know, since 1984, it's been around five or 6% of women. There are more women now than there have been in the past. So that's something that's great. And, you know, I, both on the investor side, there's a few investors that are really, I think, making strides in getting more female investors, but also, you know, helping women that are thinking about search really feel like there's a community for them. There's a women's search network, there's women's groups within search funder, et cetera. So there are, you know, people making strides, but at the end of the day, it, you know, it's just, it's very, it can be a very lonely experience for a searcher, but it can feel even more lonely for, for a female. And in my case, you know, a, a Latina, a minority searcher as well. And I'll say one of the things that's important, I think for me was just feeling like I could do this and feeling like regardless of whether I had the the perfect background or the the perfect, you know, school experience or educational experience or family background or whatever. If, if I didn't have that, it was okay, but I could figure it out because I could partner with people that, that would help me and would be my cheerleaders. And so that's why my investors were so important for me. Choosing the right investors were so important. And it was really because I didn't want to feel isolated. I didn't want to feel like, you know, if I had a question or, or if I had doubts of whether I could do that, just having that accountability and having folks that have seen others be successful in the search, it was really important for me. So even though there were unfortunately not as many role models as I'd hoped, I was hopeful that I could find not just females, but you know anyone that was passionate about bringing more diversity in search, finding more mentors and, and allies was, was super important to me. And there's, there's of course been more women joining search over the last couple of years than historically. Um, I'd be curious, what do you think is driving that? And what what do you think it's going to take to continue that trend upward to a more balanced kind of cohort of searchers? Yeah, I think it definitely has helped that, you know, there are there are more of us. And so just having a, a group that of, of people that you can rely on, that certainly helped just the prominence of the search fund model in certainly in business schools and with search fund clubs, with search fund conferences, just getting the word out there that this model exists that this model is entrepreneurship with a different spin, maybe a more risk-adjusted sort of, of entrepreneurship. I think building out that pipeline has helped. Things like the Women's Search Network has certainly helped. One of the things that I think is also very important is, you know, traditionally, when you look at the folks that are going into search and their career journey or their life journey, it tends to be people that are in their late 20s, early 30s, maybe have a few years of, experience, of work experience, and they either go to their MBA or they don't go to their MBA but they, or their mid-career. But it tends to be people that are thinking about maybe the next stage in their life. And so for women, oftentimes that correlates with uh, family planning. And it oftentimes correlates with, can I do a search? Can I do entrepreneurship? And think about my partner, think about the fact that maybe I want to have children someday if that's the, the path that you pursue. And I think that there's been now a few examples within search, both females that have had that have family planned and, and had um, their children as CEOs and women that have had children during their search, first and, and second children. And I think that certainly helped alleviate some of the pressures. There's some other hypotheses around why 
more women don't pursue search, geographic constraints, et cetera. That certainly was not my case. And I don't know if I believe that as much because just like a woman has geographic constraints, so does a man if you're in a if you're any sort of partnership. So certainly for for my case, it was it was having the confidence that I could do this and, and could ultimately be successful. And that's where my investors really, really helped in being mentors throughout this journey. And also thinking about, well, regardless of, you know, when I choose to take the next step in, in my life, if I choose to have children, when I choose to have children, that I could find a supportive network and that I know that folks would be receptive to to that next step is is something that helped as well for for my journey. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the whole search model should be kind of a perfect fit for anyone of any gender or race to be to get ready for being a CEO because it's designed to help folks with a whole bunch of different backgrounds, whether it's finance traditional or totally non-traditional. But the whole the whole basis of the model is that you can be an effective CEO regardless of age or experience. And there's I think that's what's been exciting for me, like to study so many different searchers is see that the background has very, very little to no correlation with how the company's actually performed afterwards. Like some first-time CEOs just knock it out of the park and do phenomenally well, even though they were never a CEO before. So like it, it just feels like a model that's that should be a perfect fit for anyone who's not from a traditional background. Yeah, Alex. And that's exactly why it's so mind-boggling to me why there's not more, not just women, but more diversity in search in general. And it, because it's something that when you go and think about it, you know, you're trying to get people, whether they've had leadership experience, direct professional leadership experience or not, you're trying to get them in the driver's seat of a business, period. It's not a specific type of business. It's not a specific type of industry. There are some characteristics that overlap, but you're trying to find one asset, one great business. And so to me, it's mind boggling that we don't have more diversity because just like there are so many different kinds of businesses and and industries, there are so many different kinds and flavors of, of CEOs and so much diversity and experience. And I think that's so important to meet the needs of the small business community. And Again, that's why I am so passionate about diversity and, and women in search, because there are just thousands upon thousands of, of assets and small businesses that really need different people that, that people that think differently and, and have different points of views and have different experiences. And I think it's just people that are you know hungry to learn more and hungry to do better for the business. And I think that's again, that's that's why it's so important to to bring to shed light on this issue. Yeah, certainly. It's also personal for me. My mom is a business owner with a, a small, you know, family practice very in that small town south of Portland. So like seeing seeing my mom, like growing up with my mom being the business owner of the family was was kind of fun in that regard. But who are some of course you mentioned the, the CFO of of Home Depot, you you who's now at UPS. Who are some other female role models that you admire a lot? Yeah. I mean, I, I really, really hate to get cliche here, but my mom is certainly my biggest role model. She was a single mother and I'm a single daughter. And we immigrated here to the U.S. when I was fairly young at five, just two of us. And so I think having that strong female role model really from birth was ultimately what made me into who I am. And I think that's also why I can fare a little better with in situations that are high stress, high uncertainty, because I was always placed in those situations. So my my mom is definitely my my biggest role model. And professionally in, in business, you know, I've always been fortunate to have really great female role models, like you mentioned, Carol Tomei, 
even though, you know, she wasn't my direct mentor, I, you know, we, re- we reported to her, just seeing her being in the same room as her. And then women that were more direct rep, um, mentors and, and managers. I mean, I always strive to find good examples across each point in my career. And by the way, whether it was a woman or, or a man, but just folks that I really related to and folks that I really admired, try to try to learn from them. And it tended to be women oftentimes, but it also tended to be people that were really empathetic, like yourself, to you know the, the cause of diversity and understanding that we all don't have the same background, but that's okay. And you bring different things to the table. So those that's the way that I've sort of navigated my career as well. Yeah, certainly. So in your in your first year searching, what are you most excited about? I'm excited to continue to learn and get better every day. One of the things I think people often say, are you a, a journey or a destination person? And I think the majority of searchers have to be journey people. And I certainly am not an exception. I'm a journey person. And what that means is each day you have a new challenge. Each day you're thinking about how you allocate your time, how you allocate your resources, in my case, because I'm traditionally funded, how you allocate time with your team if you have, an, if you have interns or if you don't have interns, how you present yourself, how you communicate with sellers. And each day I think you learn and you build upon what you learned that previous week or, or the previous month. And that's, that's what's most exciting for me is knowing that each day I can get better and Ultimately, you know, it can feel intimidating to be doing a search because it can feel like it's such a binary process. You either buy a business or you don't. But I think having a mindset where you understand, even if you're not at that one yet, having the faith that you will get there. And even if you don't get there, it's okay because it wasn't just time loss, but you ultimately learned from the process and became a, you know, a different person from the process. That's, that's what I'm most excited about, just continuing to learn. That's fantastic. I want to get to closing questions too here. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? The college class I would teach would probably be about immigration and not just in the U.S., but as an immigrant myself, I think there's lots of patterns on on immigration. And I was always interested in the way that sociology feeds into business and into macroeconomics. And I think that there's a lot of demographic changes in the U.S. and in the world that are very interesting to to learn about. And immigration and demographics, I think, it, you know, just for someone that thinks in a very macro level, would be a very interesting college class to to teach and to learn what the next ten years have in have in store for us. Yeah, certainly, it's a very it's a more convoluted process, I think, than it than it needs to be for a lot of a lot of countries, especially our own. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Yeah, I like everyone in the last few years, we've lived in a very politicized society and we certainly, you know, see that now. And I think when I was younger, I always used to think, well, there is one way. And if you don't think the way that I do, or if you don't see my point of view, you know, there is no other way and outright dismissing others. And I think the the older that I've gotten, that belief has uh, is no longer there with me. And I try to be more understanding, empathetic, and trying to understand the other person's viewpoints. Because just if you don't, just just because you don't agree with you know my beliefs, or just just because you you voted one way or another way, or or you said X thing on social media, that doesn't really mean that I understand you and understand the full picture. So that's something that you know, as, as the more I, I, I age, <laughs> the older I get, the more I learn that you know everything is is nuanced. 
Yeah, there's tons of nuance. Like there's, when you talk to anybody, there's always something you don't know that they know. They, they, they always know, like they always have at least one piece of information that you don't. Even if it's as simple as like their own like life or personal experience or what happened to them that day, like there's always something you don't know that they do. And whether you're like whoever you're talking to, there's always there's always like a different pile of information that they're using that you aren't using or you're using differently or whatever. That's a that's a deeper one that you could you could go go on for a while. Yeah, and and I think just just really quickly, I think for search and small businesses, that's so important to have that view because you're reaching out to anyone that, I mean, in the U.S. or in geography or whatever, you you have to understand that everyone is different and. You have to be able to level set with just because someone doesn't see things your view, it's okay. And they have their own reasons and really understand where they're coming from and not dismiss people. And I think, unfortunately, even today in, in our society with everything going on, we we it's very easy to fall back to to that kind of thinking. And I don't think it behooves us, certainly not this community, to just think one way or another. Yeah, I totally agree. What's the best business you've ever seen? Aside from Home Depot, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The best, the best business I've ever seen, uh, actually, the best, the best business I've ever seen is honestly schools and and universities. They, if you if you have a well established school, and I'm not talking about you know new private pay pay schools, but if you have a well established school like a Harvard, right, you just have such brand recognition, such legacy that people will literally pay no matter what, to go to that school, even if it's during the pandemic and you're not, you know, being in person. But but I actually think businesses with strong brand recognition, with strong legacy, with strong levels of service and a track record, like old school legacy universities, I think those are the best businesses because ultimately they're super emotionally driven as well. And everyone's always going to value education. And so I think having that brand recognition with the legacy and the track record, the unit economics might, might not be as strong if you are investing a lot in gyms or, or whatever you're trying to build in new buildings. But I think thinking long-term, if I could invest in, in long-term universities, may, maybe not in the U.S. because they're developed, but in Mexico, for example, um, where I'm from, that, that would be an amazing business opportunity. That would be really neat. And also the that strong brand name also allows you to launch other businesses. Like if you think of MIT with MIT Tech Review or Harvard Business Review, there's these those are like both media examples because I'm a, I'm a media geek, but those are phenomenally successful businesses. Like Harvard Business Review on its own is I can't remember how many hundreds of millions in revenue it has, but it's a massive business that is really successful and builds off of that brand value that Harvard established. So if you think of like I don't know what the best you know universities in Mexico would be, but you could buy like maybe one or two, and then figure out you know what is the either the content business you can make or some other product or service that you could sell that kind of builds on that brand value, but also like of course helps the student body and alumni as well. That could be that, that could be an interesting strategy to add. Yeah, and I think I think it goes back as well to that emotional component, right? A lot of businesses have brand value when you can create, again, that goes into the service level and making sure that you have a really great business. But if you have a strong brand value and if you're in a business where you can add ancillary services, like you said, in you know magazines or, or research and your unit economics makes sense, I think that's, that's where you have 
a solid business. But then when you overlay that with the emotional attachments that it is to be, you know, your alma mater, your really being of that school, really having a community built in, I think it's super strong when you when you add that overlay that that emotional component. Yeah, absolutely. I think my version of your school investment strategy would be buying airports. Like I would love to buy like small private airports, add hangars and restaurants and kind of what Flying Magazine is doing with uh, this fly-in resorts are building in Chattanooga. Like that would be a fun strategy to, to do. Some of them, some airports are publicly traded too. I don't think any US ones, but there's some and then I think South America that are publicly traded that are kind of interesting to look at. I think there's one, I want to say Spain or some other European countries, there's a few that are publicly traded. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, the unit economics can make sense even, well, yeah, in the U.S. across private airports and with with a little investment, you can go a long way. And then obviously for both of these businesses, you have a big real estate component. So traditionally universities or airports will be in big plots of land. And if you're strategic about that they're and, and smart around your capital allocation decisions, that certainly can be very interesting. Yeah. And there's tons of expansion opportunities. So with the with an airport, you can build a new terminal. Lots of new terminals are built just to expand capacity. But if you notice, like new terminals have way more restaurants or amenities and other ways that the airport can make money off of you know restaurant revenue or just you know extra small landing fees or whatever. But it's kind of similar like football stadiums, like new NFL stadiums will have a ton more boxes and more restaurants. They can have more revenue from you know selling boxes and prime seats or better restaurant revenue. There's a whole bunch of like nuances to like expansion of those of like infrastructure pieces that I find interesting, but I digress. We'll, we'll learn about that later. Yeah, no. And I mean, I just to, just to finish with that, I do know a few folks that do like franchise opportunities within airports specifically. And that, I mean, could be a bolt on to your investment thesis in, in airports. But I think that's very interesting because once you know one of the players, you know, it's very easy to get into other players and everyone's always going to need food in an airport. It's pretty low maintenance. You have to go in through security costs, et cetera, but you can actually build really good profitable businesses. If you have one or two key franchise franchisor and are able to license across different airports. I know that, you know, a few folks have done really well with that um, thesis. So maybe that could be a bolt on to your, to your strategy. Yeah. I would love to chat with them. So we'll sidebar and, and bookmark that for later. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit. This was Super fun. I, I loved getting to chat and uh, it was good to, good to chat with you again and have it a little bit, a little bit more recorded. So this is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 